You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Jason Fickett, who's the Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the Intelligence Division of the Washington Field Office of the FBI. ASAC Fickett entered on duty as a Special Agent with the FBI in February 2002, and in 2007, he was selected for a six-month FBI counterterrorism temporary duty assignment to Baghdad, Iraq, where he created and led the investigative unit of the Law and Order Task Force at FOB Shield, that's Forward Operating Base Shield. In 2010, Mr. Fickett was promoted to Assistant Legal Attaché, U.S. Embassy Kabul, Afghanistan, where he directed the Major Crimes Task Force located at Camp Falcon. In 2011, he was promoted to FBI Headquarters as a Supervisory Special Agent in the International Operations Division, International Fusion Cell. While with the IFC, Mr. Fickett was the Strategic and Operations Manager for Afghanistan, Ethiopia, and Yemen. Prior to joining the FBI, he served as an intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy and just retired with the rank of commander, serving as the operations officer of a Defense Intelligence Agency Reserve Unit in New York. There's a lot more to his bio. We're going to talk a little bit about it as we move our way through. But welcome, sir, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks, you, Vince. It's great to be here. So I, I kind of have two questions to begin with. They're somewhat related. They're kind of mixed in together. You were an intelligence officer before you joined the FBI, and now you're doing you know intelligence work on that side. So what brought you to the intelligence world in the first place? What got you interested in wanting to be an intelligence officer in the military? So growing up, um, I've always had a, a, an interest in, in serving my country. Um, and I think usually one or two avenues that people choose, either in the military or in law enforcement, at least in my mind. For me, um, pursuing a career in the military was something that I kind of put on hold as I was involved in athletics in college and then moved on to a career in education. So I saw the reserves as an opportunity to continue something that I wanted to do as a young child. And so I pursued something with the Naval Reserve, and they had a program where you could enlist uh, as an intelligence specialist if you had a college degree. And then later, two years later, actually, I received a commission uh, through the direct commissioning program in the U.S. Navy and then continued down that road working intelligence matters. So it allowed me to continue to do what I was doing 
as a teacher and a coach, but then also pursuing an interest of serving my, my country and wearing that uniform once a month and giving something back. What drew you to Intel like, uh, versus other potential fields, being a, a ship driver you know, or doing something uh, different? I mean, the Navy has a ton of possible jobs you can do. You know, what brought you into the Intel field? Uh, it was just something that was of interest to me, right? It's something that looking at what was happening when I got in back in the mid-90s, uh, a lot of things were developing and going on overseas, and I saw this as a way for me to be engaged in something that was relevant in real, and then as a reservist, oftentimes reservists are in a training status, mm -hmm. but in the intel field, you're actually doing real work. So you report for your, your duty on a weekend, and you're actually doing production, and you're creating products that's serving a combatant command or maybe CENTCOM or something like that, rather than getting ready to do something. Right, it's not like you're doing fake intelligence analysis here, you know, exactly. you're doing real stuff moving And it forward. just kept getting better. As you, as you referenced, I just recently retired, but the connectivity we have now in 2019 and the work I was doing with my unit up in New York was real time. And we were augmenting operations in a real time basis around the globe. So you had an opportunity obviously to join a lot of potential different government agencies. With the intelligence background, you might think that you might consider going into CIA or you know DIA since you already had kind of the military side of things. Why the FBI? Like, what drew you to that particular government agency? It's a great question. Um, there's a ton of great federal agencies, state agencies, local agencies, and I've worked with a lot of them in the 18 years that I've been an agent. But for me, the FBI, since I was a, a young child, uh, was something I was just fascinated with. Uh, the mission, what they did, of course, Hollywood and the books added to that. And in fact, I often tell the story when I was a young kid. Uh, there were a number of years I was an FBI agent for Halloween. It was a pretty comprehensive costume, too. It consisted of a sunglasses, um, a plastic water gun, and a members-only jack. I don't know if you remember those, but the reason that... I'm of age to remember <laughs> members-only jack. The reason yeah. that completed the ensemble is it had an inside pocket, which is where I thought the FBI agent would put the gun, right? Um, so as I got older, it just became something I always had in the back of my mind. And as I said, I was a high school teacher. I was teaching in Mapleton, Minnesota at a high school called Maple River. I was head wrestling coach. I was coaching football. And then one day I was um, at a video store back when we used to rent videos and started striking up a conversation with the guy next to me. He turns out to be an FBI agent. And he invites me into his office to talk about the FBI. And he convinces me, hey, you should pursue this. We're looking for people with a diverse background. And at the time, I thought I had kind of a unique path in. But once I got on board with the FBI, I recognized that a lot of us that come into the FBI, we kind of have a, a diverse background, right? right? And I think everybody thinks, for the most part, at least that's what I thought, everyone's law enforcement before they come in or they're spec ops or something of that nature. But the FBI is made up of engineers, nurses. Um, I had a PhD in chemistry that was in my academy class. It's just, it's a well-rounded organization and back to the original part of your question here before I digressed is for me the FBI had such a broad spectrum of things that they did that I saw this as an opportunity to just do a lot of great things right. in a career. What's funny is you talked about being a, uh, a coach and then when you talked about being a coach in Minnesota you pronounced the word coach in a completely different way which is <laughs> it's pretty wonderful. If, if you it know, comes you, out once You in a went while. straight into your Minnesota dialect yeah. when you are talking about that your first couple of years at the Bureau, you actually did kind of what we consider kind of traditional G-men stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Violent crimes and narcotics and public corruption. 
what made you transition to counterterrorism overseas duty? Because a lot of people who we've talked to, their big rite of passage, career-defining moment was 9-11, but you came into the FBI after. So it wasn't like that acted as the catalyst for you transitioning to CT work. What brought you to that? I mean, it's a very different career path. It is. Right? You're going from kind of the criminal justice side to the national security side. And people don't necessarily understand that FBI is kind of bifurcated that way. So what, what did you want to go in that direction, or was it just kind of happenstance? So um, I was actually mobilized. So I was a lieutenant at the Navy at the time, and I got mobilized, uh, presidential recall. And I got sent over to Baghdad to Ford Operating Base Shield. And while I was there, I was on a military team that was engaging with the Minister of Interior. It was right outside Sadr City. And the legat, the legal attache office there in uh, Baghdad at the embassy, was trying to broker or build a relationship with the military or the police entity that I was working with. And so due to my position, I was able to kind of foster that relationship. And over a couple months, that relationship became pretty strong and I built a better relationship with the legat. And when it was time for me to demobilize, uh, the legat had asked, hey, would you be willing to stay on board as an FBI agent and to run this task force that I'm building? Because this is right when Petraeus had shown up and we were uh, there's a big surge mm -hmm. in one of Petraeus' initiative was to really build up the law enforcement engagement in that initiative. And I thought, hey, I'm, I'm here. It'd right. be a great opportunity. And so I'm probably one of the few people uh, in theater that one day was walking around as a, as a Navy officer, and literally the next day I was an FBI agent. Yeah, you just put your camo away and put the khakis and polo I on, did. and you're ready to roll. And, okay. I did. Much more comfortable. Right. <laughs> so let me ask you about Iraq and Afghanistan, because I think that Certainly, these are sometimes conflated and kind of the mission there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked to a lot of people for both the intelligence and military side that um, that understand that the public, and you know, in many cases, kind of see those as being over there. Now, my first question is: You spent time in both of these places. Who did you piss off to not get sent to London or Berlin or other places? Um, but the bigger question—I mean, that's kind of a half joke, but you, know, you can want to talk a little bit about that because Legats are all over the world. Um, you know, a lot of people get sent to, you know, you're the league at for Barbados. Congratulations. You get sent to Baghdad and then, of course, later Kabul. Um, let's talk about the conflation idea because I, I imagine these are very different legal situations, very different law enforcement situations. And, and I could be wrong, but, it, you know, from a basic understanding of history, Iraq has hundreds, if not thousands of years of legal framework as a nation or some kind of a nation. Whereas Afghanistan still to this day doesn't have that kind of fundamental established framework of laws other it's than the tribal assessment. stuff. So was it kind of night and day comparing the two? Yes and no, right? So I was in, I was in Iraq in 06, 07. This was during the surge uh, under General Petraeus. And then I was in Afghanistan all of 2010 and part of 11, which was another surge under President Obama with McChrystal first and then Petraeus. Mm -hmm. The the environments were, were similar. I think we were dealing with more of a um, a bigger threat, external threat from IEDs and et cetera in Iraq than we saw in Afghanistan. But nonetheless, both were, were a very austere environment that the way we traveled, the way we, we went about doing our business required us to be very careful. My work in Iraq in dealing with the Iraqis, to your point, much more established, but still not anywhere near where we would consider acceptable. And the sectarianism that was going on there made it very difficult. Mm -hmm. So 
it seemed like <clears throat> the team I was working with, the Ministry of Interior, the only people that they seemed to find any guilty issues with were Sunnis. And so it was me kind of working through that process with them and saying, hey, let's look at what the facts are. Let's try to have an understanding of where and, and what's happened rather than who they are. It was hard getting past that. Right. Um, in Afghanistan, to your point, we had a much bigger operation there. So the, the team that I was working with in, in Iraq, I had six or seven investigators. In Afghanistan, we had 160 investigators. Wow. In fact, I think we had at our peak about 160 vetted Afghanis from the Ministry of Interior and the National Director of Security. And then we also had about 10 or 12 FBI agents on rotation and another 10 or 12 international mentors from the Italian Carbonari, uh, the Gendarmerie from France. Um, I think we had uh, investigators from SOCA, Serious Organized Crime Agency, which is now the, I think the National Crime Agency up in Britain. And all of us were working to build the capacity and capability there. And it was much more challenging in that sense because they were learning really as you're building the plane, we used to like to say. Mm -hmm. like we're, we're literally building this thing as we're in the air. And then the other piece that we had a challenge with there is the corruption was so pervasive right. that even if we were putting together solid investigations, and I think we made great progress in that, it was hard to get anything through the courts because that, that was another system we couldn't really tap into and we really couldn't make progress on that end. But on both sides of it, both the Iraqis and the Afghanis uh, and the investigators I worked with, their hearts were in it. I mean, they wanted this to work. Right. I mean, they, they, they were living a life that they didn't want to be for their families as they, as they age, and so they were really hoping that this could be something that would be a way to take them into the future in, in a much more stable way. For me, the question has always been, and I think other people may think this way also, for the FBI, the major, the major goal overseas, and the answer to this question might be both, but is it to prepare these countries, like Iraq and Afghanistan, to do the criminal justice nuts and bolts, the fingerprint analysis, the, the forensic analysis, to, to get people who are raping and murdering off the streets, or is it more focused on the CT side, the more kind of militarization of police work? Is there a broader, is there, again, the answer could be both. Um, what are we trying to do as an FBI? Um, create a capable national police force or create a capable national counterterrorism force? To your answer, yes, yes, yeah. and yes, right? So we have a big presence, and I can talk a little bit about the legal attache program as a whole, if you'd like, first, Please. and give you a little background. So, you know, we're, we're traditionally a domestic intelligence and law enforcement agency. So most people don't realize that we do have a, a footprint. In fact, we have about 400 people overseas right now. And that started back during World War II. Actually, back in 41, the country of uh, Colombia asked us to send an FBI agent to report to the uh, U.S. Embassy in Bogota. And that became our first legal attache office. And then we opened offices the following year, I believe, in Ottawa, London, Mexico City. Since that time, all the way up to 2019, We've now expanded that program, our, our overseas program, to about 70 countries worldwide. And so the focus overall, the overarching goal, is for us to strengthen and build relations with foreign national partners in law enforcement intelligence so we can share information to make sure that they're stronger and that we're stronger. But when you get down to it, each country is unique, mm -hmm. right? So when we look at countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, which are what you 
qualify as developing countries. It's really a capability and capacity building mission. Very similar to what the Army was doing over there right. as well, right? You're, you've got to get the foundation in place, right? You've got to get them to a place where they're actually able to function in a sustainable way. But in a Tier 1, or we call a developed country, when I was in Italy, when your counterparts, the Carbonari, the Polizia Stato, are very capable, just as capable as we are, it's really a, an exchange of information and then working mutual investigations mm -hmm. together. So let me, let, me, let me go back. That's a fantastic answer when they ask the question, though, from, from Iraq and Afghanistan, you talk about developing capabilities, but for what? Capabilities to catch serial killers or capabilities to catch terrorists? So, and that, that's, okay. I, I know, I know I'm kind of harping on this, but this is my real, like, my real question is, you know, where, obviously the counterterrorism stuff needs to be at the first and foremost, because you can't have a civilized society mm -hmm. if everyone's blowing up everything else. At what point do you start to shift into the kind of day-to-day -day crime solving part of this? Or is that something you start from the very beginning? So in Iraq, our focus actually was on more on counterterrorism. And that was, that was the direction that we as a U.S. organization, the State Department, et cetera, mm -hmm. felt that we need to work on. When I was in Afghanistan, it was public corruption. You know, um, Afghanistan, I think at the time in 2010, if, if it wasn't the most corrupt, yeah. it's always back and forth, I think, with um, Somalia. Um, it, was, it was right up there at the top of the list. And so our whole focus of this task force, it was called the Major Crimes Task Force, we created three different units, a unit that worked organized crime, kidnapping, which was extremely pervasive across the Afghan landscape, and then public corruption. And that was the challenge that the State Department at the time under Secretary uh, Clinton and then our leadership within uh, justice we're, we're looking to push is really build that ability. I think one of the things I used to always tell people is in Af Afghanistan, it was such a corrupt society at that time, just to get a license, to go get a, a license so you can drive a car, the average Afghan, you have to pay off about 17 people, right? <laughs> and we, we chuckle at that, yeah. but just think about right. living in that society, right? And, and that then, hampers economic growth, oh. that hampers all sorts of, you know, women's liberation because, you know, driving we kind of take for granted. But if you look at the Saudis and everything about how much driving can impact a a society's ability to kind of move into the 21st century. And and as I mentioned before, the, the, the heart of the Iraqis and the heart of the Afghanis was, was very strong. They really wanted this to work. And the point that that always sticks out in my mind as well is the Afghanis kind of had to operate in secret because if they went home and people in their neighborhood knew they were police officers, they and their families were in danger. Right. So they had to risk their lives to come and work with us every day and then go back home at night and then do that day after day after day with that hope that this task force could take hold and we could actually make progress. Obviously, counterintelligence, for lack of a better word in this case, had to be a big concern. Mm -hmm. You talk about being people who are vetted, but around the same time or right before you were there was the coast bombing where you've mm -hmm. got people who thought they were dealing with someone who had been put through the vetting process. Um, there's always stories about you know, green on green or green, green on blue, where someone who you think is on your team decides to go shoot up something else. How much was that a concern? I'm obviously it was, uh, but at what point um, did it slow down your ability to do your job or did it? So to your point, the green on blue shootings, um, I think one of the things that I was really happy with my FBI leadership at the time is that we never wavered on that because there was a huge push by the State Department 
to allow our Afghan partners, when we're engaged on a daily basis, for them to be armed with us. And we didn't allow that at our task force. So when they came into the walls of our camp, it was called Camp Falcon. It's on the north side of Kabul. Um, they couldn't be armed. And it was for that very reason. That's one way to solve that problem, It was one. And at times it was insulting to them. We had to work through that, right? They're police officers. They're in their own country, and they can't be armed. They come onto the base. And I just tried to be as transparent, and it was just an honest conversation with them, is that I have no reason to suspect anything would go wrong, but I can't risk it because if it does, everything stops. And what we're trying to build together will cease to exist, right? And so we got through that. We built those relationships um, and then there was a push. I was there for, like I said, about 13 months. And there was a push a couple times for us to allow them to be partially armed or allow them to do this or allow them to do that. And we said, no, at the end of the day, when they come on here, it's strictly a, a capacity relationship. So we're training, we're doing things with them. And then vice versa, I think this is what made our task force unique. We never left the walls with them. When they went out and conducted investigations or they conducted search warrants or arrests, there was no U.S. footprint involved. And we did that for a couple of reasons. One is, if this thing's going to work, they got to be able to do it themselves, right. right? We can't be there during the process. And number two, we didn't want any fingerprint of us involved because that gave the prosecutor and uh, president at the time, Karzai, an opportunity to say, well, this is U.S. influence. This is right. U.S. activity. So we really wanted to separate ourselves well, from you that. We the puppet masters. Exactly. Well, let me, you talked a lot about interagency cooperation or somewhat not cooperation. Um, obviously, all these op- missions in Afghanistan and Iraq were not just one agency. It was lots of agencies working together. I wonder about, let me use the word traditional intelligence agencies, the CIA, the DIA, and others. Their mission is very different than yours. Um, they're not trying to build a case for court. They're not trying to gather evidence. They're trying to uh, run agents and do things. It's sometimes very antithetical to what the FBI is trying to do. You can't obviously get too much into this, or maybe you probably don't want to get too much into this. Uh, but in a general sense, how much dealing with everybody else uh, made your life that much more difficult? And I hate to keep saying this, but it depends on the country right. you're in, right? I, I would say when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, the relationship was very strong because we had very similar interests, right? And underlying our activity in Iraq and Afghanistan is also America's interest, America's security. And so... If there was something that we knew or they knew that had any negative impact or risk to the U.S., U.S. interest, we were very forthright on that. But to your point, we do have different missions, right? Um, We're looking to build the judicial process, so it's a very transparent process. It's completely different than what our other partners are doing. It's a great mission that they have. It's just different. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was in Italy, a little bit different at times because – Everything we did and touched is potentially um, discoverable in a court of law, and the agency doesn't ever want to have any um, exposure on right. that side. So we just would would talk a lot. It was my it was my job as the as the head of the office in Italy to have a good relationship with DIA and to have a good relationship with CIA. And I think we did. They both had great leaders when I was there, and we just knew where our lanes were. And if there was going to be any conflict. We have agreements in place between these agencies that we've established through our respective headquarters that we work them out, right? At the end of the day, we're not always on the same page in the sense that we agree, but we're all trying to do the same thing. Right. And I've always tried to approach with that mindset. We'll be right back after this. 
The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, you mentioned you mentioned working in Rome as in Italy. Um, I joked in the beginning about you know you piss somebody off because you got all these terrible assignments. You finally got your cushy job yes. in Rome, but uh, as we were talking beforehand, the timing probably wasn't as good as perhaps it could have been. And maybe maybe the audience is out there is like, yeah, it's easy to work with the CIA in Rome. Like, what's the big deal there? But actually, there was a lot happening. There was, um, and and I don't want to. My my time in Iraq and Afghanistan was amazing, yeah. and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But to your point, you know, when the day ended, which was pretty late at night, I wasn't going anywhere, right? It was, I wasn't going to the Spanish Steps or down to the Coliseum. It was back to my hooch <laughs> and waiting for the next day to start. Italy was different. Uh, but I reported there in the summer of uh, 2013, and that was during the time that Syria was going through uh, its crisis, and we had this huge migration of refugees coming out of Syria. And at the same time, we had a huge ISIS problem in North Africa, particularly in Libya, and this expansion of, the, of their caliphate. And so we had all these refugees coming across the Med from there. And their entry point into Europe was Italy yeah. uh, through the port of uh, Lampedusa, which was in Sicily. And we were literally taking, I should say we, the Italians were taking in hundreds of thousands of these refugees. And we knew 99.99% of them were true refugees, just trying to escape the horrific life that they were uh, escaping from. But there was also a risk, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't know, like, who was going to come through. Was there going to be potential ISIS coming through or some type of foreign fighter that we didn't want uh, in Italy or in Europe? And so I worked a lot with the Italians on making sure we were, we were whole on understanding who was coming in and if we were able to identify if anything that was a threat to the Italians or Western interests, that we'd be able to share information together to, so they could work their investigation. Because... We don't have any investigative power, right? So right. we're in these 75 countries that, uh, that we operate in, we don't have the ability to go out. I'm not armed in Italy. I'm not walking around taking people into custody. The Italians have that authority. Right. So if we have an interest, or we had a fugitive, or if we knew of information about a potential, potential terrorist suspect, we'd pass that information on. We'd coordinate as much as possible. But at the end of the day, it's for the Italians to execute on. And it was the same in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so the stronger that relationship is, and the more capable that that country is to protect its own interests, it's to the U.S. interest as well. Right. Well, I mean, refugees may not just be full of potential ISIS members or foreign fighters. You also have every other segment of society that you don't want yeah. coming in, whether they're criminals or rapists or just, just everyday bad guys yeah. coming in there that you have to vet as well. I mean, I, I think... I'm going to piss off a lot of people in my hometown. The Marielle Boatlift in the 1980s is an interesting example of this where, you know, Castro let a lot of people leave, but at the same time opened the insane asylums and the prisons and everybody else and said, go to Miami. And so there was an influx of people that probably shouldn't have been there. And I think that, you know, not only is it Italy that you are worried about, but it's also people, the EU is nice and open and, and everyone can go everywhere. All of a sudden, Europe is now dealing with not just ISIS people, but also money launderers and rapists, whatever. 
Is that, I mean, do, do you consider beyond just the level of ISIS people? Or are you looking at kind of a broader I, I know scope? the Italians did. Yeah. I mean, the, the criminal element was not of major concern as far as our interest in the right. U.S. I mean, that obviously was something I would talk about with my counterparts, and we still were helping them in that matter. Um, our focus was helping them on things that are of national security matters, right? Uh, I didn't have the bandwidth to, yeah, right. to become That's a police true, officer yeah. with them. Uh, and the Italians, are, they're very good at what they do. Um, they do it differently, um, but they do it very well. They, they have a very big footprint across that entire country. And when they find out there's something in their country that shouldn't be there, they're very quick to, to deal. Like their prime minister. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's take a pretty dramatic shift to one of the reasons that we kind of linked up in the first place is that this new program um, that is being run out of uh, a partnership uh, the, the FBI Washington Field Office in partnership with your Foreign Influence Task Force is a campaign called Protected Voices. Uh, and this is geared toward protecting campaigns against foreign influence. Sounds like something that would have been a great program in 2015. Um, is the catalyst for this the 2016 campaign? Is this something that is was thought of before that? Was this something that was um, thought of when the Estonia attack happened back in, I think, 2013 or 2012? Was this something that was always kind of milling about, but 2016 has really brought it to fruition? I mean, I, what I can say is this initiative uh, unfolded, or we launched it back in the summer of 18, and this initiative grew out of our recognition of foreign influence operations on our 2016 elections and the continued threat of foreign influence operations from our adversaries as we move towards the 2020 elections. So with that threat, we felt along with the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of Director of National Intelligence, that we needed to be more proactive in combating that threat. So when it first rolled out in the summer of 18, our focus was really targeting on campaigns and making sure that we were engaging with the campaigns and providing them information and training on uh, the, the risk of cyber-influenced operations against their campaigns. As we've expanded the, the Protected Voices initiative, it's now broadened to really to the public as a whole. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is put out some information on what the methodology and the goals are of malign foreign influence and what that can mean to us as a country. Um, I think you know, the partnership is kind of what made this a, a great program. You know, the FBI had a great interest, but when we, when we got together with the Department of Homeland Security and ODNI, I think it just strengthened our ability to really push this out. And internally, it's been a huge FBI effort as well. I'm at the Washington field office here in D.C., and within the field office, there's agents and analysts from the cyber branch, and then also from my branch, which one of the units I have is the Office of Private Sector Engagement, and then at headquarters with Cyber Division and the Counterintelligence Division, and specifically, actually, the, the unit that owns the Protect Voice Initiative is the Foreign Influence Task Force, mm -hmm. which is a task force that was set up uh, I think it was last year by Director Ray. Um, in the, the name itself, too, I always like, I think it's great what the team came up with as far as protected voices. You know, we, we really believe that the American democracy and the practice of that democracy is, is the foundation of who we are. And so your vote, everybody's vote is a voice. And so we thought this is a great way to show this is how we protect your voice. Absolutely. Well, and, and I, I appreciate the, the minefield that you're walking through at this point. I mean, I think that uh, it, it's hard to talk about this right now in kind of this climate without sounding political. Um, and that and that's and I'm reading, I went and read the website, and I'm, I'm looking at 
the, the threats that are identified for they're from cyber attacks against political campaigns. And I kind of chuckle secret funding or influence operations to help or harm a person or a cause. So of course, I'm kind of chuckling disinformation campaigns on social media and I'm now outright laughing. And it's one of these things where it's like, if I read this and I don't think objectively, which 99% of the American public is probably going to be thinking somewhat emotionally about this. You look at this and go, oh, geez, this is this is very much directed in a particular direction. And, and, it, and it's, it might be an unfair question, and, and it almost certainly is an unfair question, so feel free to do what you want with it. The FBI is supposed to be, and always has been, branded as apolitical. But it has been branded as somewhat a political entity lately. Um, in a big way, this is because of disinformation that was a campaign by a foreign adversary. A lot of the trouble the FBI is going through today is because the Russians and others, particularly the Russians, have tried to make the FBI look as though it is a political entity. So how do you get the message across when you aren't working in a vacuum? In this case, you're literally working against the same adversary you're warning others about. You know, don't trust the FBI, they're part of the deep state. Don't trust the FBI because they're against the president. Don't trust the FBI. Well, all of these things come magically out of Russia, right, in other places. But those are the people that you're trying to protect everyone else again. I mean, again, it's not a very fair question for you. Obviously, you can only say so much. But I'm wondering if there is a kind of a way to dance around this and get an answer to this question. So it's a legitimate question. Um, what I will say is that what we feel at the FBI, the best way to battle a disinformation campaign is to provide an accurate information or facts in, in rebuke, right? So. We've got within our organization 37,000 men and women who are focused on every day doing what we're supposed to do and let the facts reflect what is actually happening. And that's as far as we're going to go with that, right? So we're not going to get in the, in the back and forth and mm -hmm. into your question. It's just not something I'm going to dive all the way into. We just let our work and the end product of our work speak for itself, and we continue to move down that road doing what we're supposed to do and what we've been charged to do. So there are a lot of different things that you highlight on the website. And for anyone out there who um, hasn't looked at it, it's definitely worth taking a look because of whether you're running a small business or you're running a large business or, or anything else, these are things that you should be able to take to heart because they're designed for everyone. Some of the things that you call out are hardware system-based issues. Like we're not going to talk about whether or not you should have a different modem or whatever or server. That's not our, my bailiwick. But I want to kind of talk about a few that aren't that really kind of focus in on the broader disinformation foreign influence side of things, if that works with you. Okay. Yeah, so I think, and we can get into what these videos are and some of the things that we talk about in these videos, but when we look at foreign influence operations, it's, it's a very broad thing. And there's many different methods and, and various ways that that's conducted. However, there's three common ones that we've seen that we've identified that I think are of most risk to us and uh, campaigns, companies, and individuals in our country. The first is just good old-fashioned cyber attacks against our political campaigns and government infrastructure. So systems being compromised, they're trying to steal or leak data, whether it's from a network or from a database or from emails. The second is funding that could be used to uh, produce political campaigns that we put on social media site. And then, but in reality, it's a foreign adversary. Or the third could be um, unregistered uh, foreign lobbyists. And then the last one is disinformation campaigns. And this is a major concern, right? Which is really an attempt to put out information to sow um, divisiveness um, or disconnect uh, with what's happening 
around us, right? And and a lot of times it's just creating the chaos that goes with that. The chaos is a good word for it. Yeah, that's yeah, really what that, it comes down to. And it, it, it creates enough of a problem that people buy it for a little bit, and it's hard to fix it in the back end, right? I just finished uh, General Mattis' book, and he quotes Winston Churchill in the book. And in there he says, uh, Winston Churchill said, a lie will get halfway around the world before truth has time to put his pants on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was back in, in the 40s, right? right? Before Twitter. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, multiply that today by an X factor of 1,000, right? So to me, those are the three areas that we've seen as our biggest concern uh, for, for us as the FBI and for the U.S. And then from that, we built these, these videos. Yeah, and, and, you know, social media literacy is something that is absolutely, you know, has been preached and preached and prophetized for, for quite some time. I mean, you can only say so much through video that people probably haven't heard before. Is there a level the FBI is going to that we just don't see publicly uh, that to kind of work against both kind of the disinformation campaigns that are coming in from other places? You probably can't talk about it, um, but I'm hoping that you can say, yes, there's stuff happening, but I can't talk about it. Yeah, so Protective Voices is, is an outward-facing mm-hmm. program for us to engage and, and provide information and uh, tools and techniques people can use. But most certainly, yes, we have active investigations ongoing each and every day across all of our 56 field offices tackling things such as social or um, cyber influence or uh, foreign influence. I look at something like social engineering, which is another one of the, of the videos that you focus on there. And, and I, I chuckle because really this is now people learning a lot about what intelligence officers do as a job is to learn as much as they can about a target from, and then be able to manipulate that person to give you information. Now, in, in the CIA's case, they're trying to recruit someone to work for us. But the social engineering case when it comes to cyber operations or other things, you're trying to get enough information that you can kind of break into their email or break into their system because they're using their grandmother's dog's name as their password or other things to that effect. That's also something that you would think by this time people would know better than. But even some of the smartest people, you see news stories all the time about like CEOs of companies falling for social engineering and things to that effect. How can we catch up to win this fight? Because to me, this is the biggest problem. I mean, to me, this is, this is how Edward Snowden got all of his information by walking around and asking people for their passwords. He's like, oh, I need to look at your computer when you're gone. That is, is, that's not super hacking cyber. That's literally manipulating somebody to give you information because you understand who they are. How do you get in the way of that as a law enforcement organization? It seems like that's very difficult to do. It is because we, we have a society now where everything is in the palm of our hands, right? And everything we do is out there for the public to see, right? I have, I have children and, that are active on social media platforms, and I think you know, most adults are as well. And so as a result, who we are, what we do, where we've been, what our dog's name is, where our school is, is, is all readily available. So we've, we've made it a lot easier, I think, for the adversary to social engineer us, right? Um, he can come in with 90% of the information he already has. He just needs to get the last 10% mm-hmm. from you. And if he puts enough of these pieces of the puzzle together, it's not hard to get that final piece from you. So for us, it really is an education for us to, to make sure people understand what that risk is and things they need to be doing. I ran a cyber task force up in the Buffalo Division before I came down here, and I was responsible for all the cyber intrusion sets, both on the criminal side and the national security side of the house. And I'm, I'm talking large companies, some billion-dollar companies. 
and probably 80% of our compromises, businesses that were compromised, were done through very low-tech means. And social engineering mm -hmm. was a very common one. You know, companies would spend lots of money on very sophisticated cybersecurity systems, but at the end of the day, they get compromised because someone within the organization gave up the information without much effort, right? And so I'm constantly, when I was there uh, in supervising that task force, and I'm saying it now is, Cyber hygiene is just a practice and it's a mindset. And you've got to have a different attitude about how you're approaching and doing things. And there has to be healthy skepticism right. on a day-in and day basis. And you can't take everything at face value. So, and I, I got a little long-winded there, but, but at the end of the day, the, the best counter to social engineering is reducing your digital footprint and applying just a few basic things, right? right? Uh, Multi-factor authentication, um, uh, least privilege access, just basic things that you can do at an individual level or at a company level, and in this case with the protective voices at a campaign level, that will reduce your exposure and your vulnerability. Well, let me, let me ask you one or two more questions. I, I've kept you here way too long already. Um, the FBI is a law enforcement organization. I've heard from time to time, and maybe you can tell me whether this is true or not, that the laws themselves, you can only enforce the laws that exist. The laws themselves have not kept up with the change in technology, where a lot of the cyber laws on the books are from 30, 40 years ago. There aren't people necessarily making laws today that understand this problem as well as they probably should. How hard is it to enforce all these things you want to try to enforce if you don't have the legal framework in which to do it? Is that a handicap? Is that something that needs to be changed? I'm not asking you to criticize Congress. I'm saying, how antiquated are the laws? How hamstrung is the FBI and other people that are trying to enforce cyber laws? Because there aren't really cyber laws to enforce. No, it's, it's a great question. It's a great observation. Um, going back to my time in Buffalo, and I, and I know we as an organization as a whole, it is one of our challenges. You know, the, the tools and techniques that we're developing and also the tools and techniques that the adversaries are using, for us to get legal authority to engage against some of those it's just not there yet, right? So we're working with the U.S. Attorney's offices, and we're getting smarter together. And then at that same time, we have to work with the, with the judges, right? So they understand when we put a warrant together to get access, a unique kind of search uh, into a, a computer system or something, the language is completely foreign to some of these judges, right? right? So it really becomes an education process all the way across. Um, but to your point on, on, on Congress and, and, and passing laws, you know, that's at a level much higher than me. Uh, I do believe that justice is engaging in those areas to, to help us change the laws, to give us more ability to do what we need to do. But until that time happens, we just keep working it the best we can with the laws that are in place. I think it's a perfect place to end this conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Now, Protective Voices is there a particular website. Get there. I mean, you can probably just Google FBI Protective Voices and get there. Uh, but is there a quicker path, perhaps? Yeah, so if you go to www.fbi.gov forward slash protected voices, you'll find on that website 17 instructional informational videos, and there's an 18th video, which is an introductory video from FBI Director Ray. And the men and women that do those videos, they're not actors. They're agents, intel analysts, and uh, staff operations specialists that are subject matter experts in the various right. Uh, topics and they're providing. I think they're about three to six minutes on average. And that's. I think that's a big difference between this and, and I did watch all of them. Is that the idea is 
you might at first think that this is kind of baby stuff, like, you know, beginner 101. There is an element of that to this. So if you don't have any information on this, you're not going to be completely lost. But there's a level higher too. So if you're someone that knows or think they know a little bit about this stuff, it is taken to a level where it's not dumbed down for someone. So even if you're like me, where you've seen a thousand videos on cyber and don't get hacked and other things, there's still some really good information in these 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 videos. I, I think, and I've seen a lot of videos uh, over time, and I think these are one of, one of the best sets of videos that anybody's able to put out because it's relevant and it's timely. Right. Last year we put out uh, 12 videos, and we put out another five this year, and we'll, we're going to continue to to adapt and make sure that the videos are up to date and that people have the latest information. And then the website also has links to some other things that you could to be of interest to you. Uh, the other thing I didn't get a chance to talk about, and we could fit this in as well as if we could, but you know, there, there's the other channel. You know, one channel is the website, which I just spoke about. But the other channel that we've been very proactive in is we've engaged directly with campaigns, right? So our organization has worked directly with the presidential campaigns that have been registered with the FEC, and we've offered a series of briefings uh, in person or through webinar. And if they're not able, if they were not able to participate in any of those, the transcripts of those briefs are on the website as, as well. And we've also engaged with the RNC and the DNC, and we're keeping dialogue open with all the campaigns and both the Republican and the Democratic Party because we want to make sure, alluding back to 2016, that we're both on the same page. Right. And anything that would happen that we're talking right away and that we're making sure that we don't see what took place in 2016. Because, I mean, you know, there's the joke that either you've been hacked or you have and you just don't know it yet. You know, threat mitigation and, and conflict, you know, consequence mitigation. I mean, the idea is sometimes being hacked is not the end of the world. It's letting it kind of fester and not doing something about it right away. And I think that, you know, that is one thing the FBI can certainly do in a very overt way is kind of jump in and do some mitigation of consequence. And, and that's where this can certainly play a role. That's where we didn't see in 2016 where it kind of festered for a while and a lot of information was pulled out. Um, where now you hope that if there's even the inkling of some kind of foreign influence or foreign, that they'd call you in immediately to do something about it. Yeah, and, that, and that's where the conversations and building the trust and building the relationships comes into right. play. And it's the same thing we do when I was up in Buffalo and working with the private sector and so that there was a comfort level, right? Because no one, no one wants the FBI coming in when there's a breach and that there's going to be some type of public perception that everything's in trouble right. right and so we work with them and we do it in a way that we want to make sure we we preserve what their equities are and we're only accessing the information that helps us with our investigation and ours is really our role the fbi is attribution you know we work the investigations and we're looking to identify those actors and hold them accountable and prosecute dhs has that mitigation piece right so that we kind of do that in mm -hmm. partnership uh, as we respond and that's why dh is such a great partner for us in this uh engagement well, the program is called Protected Voices. Uh, Jason Fickett's been joining us today, the Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the Washington Field Office Intelligence Division. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here today. We truly appreciate it. Thank you, Vince. It was my pleasure. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network 
and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. <laughs> 